This is the Hockey Podcast Network, your home for hockey talk on every team in the NHL. On this episode of Ice Analytics, I'm going to be talking about zone starts and zone face-offs. How much do they matter? I'm going to be joined by Mark Warner from the Vegas Hockey Podcast. Talk about the Golden Knights, a team that has led the league in offensive to defensive zone start ratio. This is Ice Analytics, proudly part of the Hockey Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 11 of Ice Analytics. I am your host, Matthew Arp. This week's number crunch is going to be all about zone starts and zone face-offs, or essentially where you start your shifts as a team. Do you start in the offensive zone or the defensive zone or the neutral zone? Do you start with a face-off in the offensive zone, defensive zone, or neutral zone? I'm going to be diving into those numbers and looking at which teams start more often in the offensive zone. And what is the relationship between more offensive zone starts and goal differential? I'm going to be joined on this week's Stat Chat by Mark Warner, co-host of the Vegas Hockey Podcast, your source for all things about the Golden Knights. And we're going to be talking about the Golden Knights on this week's Stat Chat because they have the best ratio of offensive to defensive zone starts in the NHL the past two consecutive seasons. And I would like to get his thoughts on the Knights in general, as well as what they're doing to start so much more frequently in the offensive zone than in the defensive zone. Before we jump into this week's number crunch, I do want to remind everyone of the contest that's being offered through the Hockey Podcast Network. They've partnered with Tankathon and Cool Hockey to form the first annual NHL Draft Lottery Contest. And essentially, from March 1st until April 4th, they're running a contest to see who can most accurately predict the lottery picks of this year's draft. So what you need to do is go to www.tankathon.com NHL. You can click Sim Lottery. If you don't like your results, you can hit the reset button and resim it. You can do it as many times as you want. Screenshot that 15-team outcome, that order that you want to submit as your entry. Comment on the Twitter post with your predictions. Entry closest to 15 out of 15 wins. First place gets a $200 gift card courtesy of CoolHockey.com. Be sure you're following at HockeyPodNet, at CoolHockey, at Tankathon. All entries must be submitted by April 4th at 11.59 p.m. There's no obligation. There's no commitment. Just take that screenshot, submit it, and be sure you're following the appropriate parties and you could win a $200 gift card. On this edition of Number Crunch, I'm going to be answering the following questions. What is a zone start? Why does it matter? And how is it different from face-off starts? Well, first and foremost, what is a zone start? Well, a zone start is when you start a play in a particular zone, whether it be the offensive zone, the defensive zone, or the neutral zone. This number can be represented in terms of rates per 60, or counts, or a percentage of offensive zone starts to defensive zone starts. Well, what does zone starts have to do with anything? A couple things. First of all, it's used a lot by the analytics community to provide context to other numbers such as Corsi or Fenwick or save percentage or shooting percentage because if you are constantly deployed in a particular zone, and we know players like this that are that are used in particular roles, whether it be defensive zone specialists, You need a face-off win, 
you put your specialist out there, well, that's obviously going to affect some of the other numbers and their performance if they're utilized in a very particular fashion. And let's be honest, theoretically speaking, starting the shift in an offensive zone is much better than starting it in the defensive zone. Not too many people are going to argue with you and say, no, it's better to start more often in the defensive zone. I mean, maybe these people do exist, but let's be honest, starting already in the offensive zone is optimal. That's your best chance of scoring a goal. So what I did is pulled some numbers and actually wanted to present the real impact of this stuff. I got some 5v5 numbers courtesy of Evolving Wild, and I wanted to test some of these relationships. Now, we've seen the number of offensive zone starts per 60 minutes range from 10, which is pretty low, the 2009 halves, to 16, the 2014 Red Wings. Now, this is over the past decade. Now, it doesn't matter. Well, if we look at this, there is definitely a relationship between offensive zone starts per 60 and goal differential, but it barely explains any of the variation. It's not a very powerful metric. For every 1% increase in offensive zone starts, you're only looking at about a 13 more goal differential. I mean, it's something. There is something there. But what about starting in the defensive zone? The 2009 Devils had the least number of defensive zone starts per 60, just above 8, while the 2013 Lightning had almost 16.5, which is about 20% more than the next highest, which is also Tampa Bay in 2012. The relationship between defensive zone starts and goal differential is less significant and less explanatory. For every 1% increase in defensive zone starts, you're looking at about a goal differential of minus 10. So 10 less goals scored by a 1% increase in defensive zone starts. I mean, again, this makes sense, but these are not powerful metrics. What is a powerful metric, though, is the relationship between the two. So yeah, I mean, we can look at offensive and defensive zone starts and look at the rates of those per 60, but how they relate to one another is what matters most to us. So what we're going to do is look at a ratio of offensive to defensive zone starts and see what the relationship is with the ratio to goal differential. Well, the teams with the worst offensive to defensive deployment is the 2014 Buffalo Sabres and the team with the best is the 2013 Chicago Blackhawks. Now, there are obviously outliers in this data. Carolina had two top 10 seasons in offensive to defensive deployment ratio, both 2012 and 2017, and finished with a negative goal differential both years. Alternatively, the 2008-2009 Blues had one of the best goal differentials at 5v5 and were in the bottom third of zone start ratio. However, if we look at this data as a whole over the past decade, this ratio proves to be the most significant and explanatory. It explains about 12% of the variation in goal differential. Improving your offensive to defensive deployment by just one-tenth of a point will on average increase your goal differential by 8.5. That's real. That's a real impact. At this point, you might be asking yourself, well, what about face-offs? I keep talking about zone starts. What's the difference between a zone start and a face-off? Well, thankfully, Evolving Wild got back to me, and I'm still waiting to hear back from on the second part of this question, but they gave me an explanation as to what the differences are. And they said offensive zone face-offs are all face-offs in the offensive zone. Offensive zone starts are all shifts 
played that started in the offensive zone. Similar, but slightly different. Well, there's your answer. So let's take a look at faceoffs in particular. Faceoffs in the offensive zone, defensive zone, starting more often than your opponent in the offensive zone means that you should score more, right? I mean, theoretically speaking, offensive zone faceoffs per 60 have ranged from the 2016 LA Kings, who had 21. You can compare that to the 2009 Tampa Bay Lightning, who only had 14.3. Offensive zone faceoffs have proved to be about twice as powerful of a metric than zone starts. And that should make sense because if you win the offensive zone faceoff, you're in a prime position to generate a quality shot attempt. But even if you lose that faceoff, the puck is still in the offensive zone. And all it takes is one bad pass, check, or turnover to regain puck possession. Starting with a faceoff in the offensive zone is a big deal. Defensive zone faceoffs have ranged from 23.7, Toronto in 2013, to 12.8, Jersey in 2009. And strangely enough, defensive zone faceoffs are actually less significant to goal differential than defensive zone starts. I do not have a good reason for this one. I do not have a good explanation. I'll think on that. Maybe I'll get back to this question at the end. But let's get back to this ratio for a second because the ratio is where it's at. This value has ranged from 1.3, best ratio, 2011 Detroit Red Wings, to 0.67 Buffalo 2014. Man, I, I always feel bad about Buffalo. However, the ratio of offensive to defensive zone faceoffs is even a stronger relationship than the zone start ratio. To put it in perspective, increasing your offensive to defensive faceoff ratio by one tenth of a point will on average increase your goal differential by 12. If you remember, the zone start ratio increased your differential by eight and a half. So this is a much more powerful metric. You want to get those faceoffs in the offensive zone, which means you want to shoot the puck on the goalie and get those freezes. Get set up, get your line changes. There's something there. You want to take advantage of this as a, as a player. I'm actually going to leave you hanging here a little bit because I'm going to break down these face-off numbers and look at individual players and their individual deployment and how they contribute in the face-off dot in the different zones. I'm going to be doing that next week, so be sure to tune in. But we still got offensive zone start and offensive face-off stuff to talk about with our guests on the Stat Chat. On this edition of Stat Chat, I am joined by Mark Warner, co-host of the Vegas Hockey Podcast. You can find Mark and his co-host, Chris, on Twitter, at Vegas Hockey Pod, and Chris, at the NL King. He's a writer for Eyes on Isles FS, and welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. Thank you. It's good to be here. Appreciate it. I really want to start off with a general question. You know, the Vegas Golden Knights are in the thick of a divisional playoff race right now that includes four other teams, you know, Edmonton, Vancouver, Calgary, and Arizona. It's been pretty competitive in the Pacific this year. How are you feeling about the Golden Knights season so far? If you had asked me that two weeks ago, I would have had a different answer. Um, <laughs> uh, obviously, they, they've, uh, 
they've gone on a nice little run. I mean, let's go back and look at all of our, our preseason predictions, you know, all of our preview shows and stuff that we put out. Everybody had uh, Edmonton and Vancouver in the top three with 20 games to go, right? I mean, that was something we all thought was going to happen. Um, and then the Sharks down in fifth place or wherever they are. Um, so it's it's been an upside down season in the Pacific division, you could say with what was expected and what we've, what we've seen. Um, I, right now, I mean, after the trade deadline and the, the coaching change, obviously with, with coach DeBoer coming in and some of the changes he's made in system, mostly on defense, they're, they're playing great hockey right now. They're they're I, I, I was telling my buddy, I have to trademark uh, with in the, the inaugural season, right? They, they adopted the moniker Golden Misfits. I don't know if, if you guys remember that, but oh, yeah. um, when Cody Eakin got traded, he showed the tattoo of his Golden Misfit on his leg, and he, and he just uh, captioned it, Misfit Forever. Uh, so I think they've almost, uh, they've almost attained their Misfit mode hashtag misfit mode again um, in the way that they've gone about this winning streak. Edmonton made some nice moves at the trade deadline. I think they got better. I'm not sure about the Gustafson to Calgary. His, his upside is always offensive with uh, going through Blackhawks Twitter feed, Blackhawk fans, Twitter feeds. It seems like he has some defensive liabilities in his game. And I don't think that really is what Calgary needs. And I think Arizona's fading a little bit. The, as far as matchups go, if they were to meet in the divisional round, I think Edmonton historically, well, historically three years, <laughs> um, has, has, it's a weird phrase to use with a three-year-old team, but yeah. uh, Edmonton, I think matches up the best. I mean, when you have dry side on McDavid, obviously you're going to match up with a lot of teams very well. But I think they would give the Golden Knights the most trouble in a playoff matchup. But right now, I think they're feeling their oats, if you will. And I, I like where the team's headed since Coach DeBoer uh, has come on board. I wasn't a fan of the coaching change, especially considering the history with the team and, and the San Jose Sharks. Um, but the proof is in the pudding, as they say. Yeah, I, I got to say, I agree with you. I was a little dubious when they got rid of uh, Gallant and hired DeBoer, but it seems to be working out. Well, yeah, I didn't. And, and I said on my podcast that I, if you're going to change the coach, change the coach. That's fine. I did not like the way it was handled. I didn't like the fact – and everybody remembers the the way he was uh, shown the door in Florida right there on the road. And there's the picture of him getting in the cab and, and like, you know, see you later pal on the road don't even send an uber for the guy right yeah uh, well i think the golden knights treated coach Gallant worse than that if they 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 had to have known they were going to make this coaching change i don't believe the presser where they said this all came about in the last 24 hours right they had just come off a stretch of allowing the first three goals in every game five out of the last seven uh four straight so that you're in vegas it was a seven game homestand so you don't do it in vegas where the guy can just clean out his his house and go back to the to his or clean out his office right and go back to his house um you fly to buffalo and and they don't play well in buffalo so you don't do it in buffalo you take him across an international border to ottawa where they got the plane got in at like 4 30 in the morning and then they call him up at eight and tell him he's gone that after what that guy did for this franchise 
that that was what left the bad taste in my mouth. If if yeah. you know if management decided that it was time to shake things up, I think they're a victim of their own expectations in that respect. That they you know the all, everyone thought that they were going to be in first place all season and battling the sharks and this and that. But you know, there's been a lot of roster turnover with this team in the last two years from the golden misfit days to where they are today. Um, it doesn't happen overnight. And I think Gallant was a victim of that in Florida too, as a matter of fact, because the season before they let him go, they were a playoff team. And then management decided to replace three of the six defensemen. He mm-hmm. comes out of the gate. I think he was 11 and 13 with, with 50% new defense, <clears throat> still learning system breakouts where the forwards like to get the puck and all that kind of stuff. And then they just sent him down the road. Right. But I think Gallant was a victim of that as well. And, and, you guys know growing together as a hockey team is a process. It doesn't happen because the general manager plugs this player and that player in and expects everyone to go win, you know, 135 points a season. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, It takes time to, and you know, I I grew up an LA Kings fan and when Kopitar and Brown and Dowdy and quick all came up together, it took three years for that team to learn how to play together and a coaching change. Uh, They had to get rid of coach Murray and, and, from that point on is, is when they really came together as a team. So being a victim of expectations is one thing, but I just didn't like the way that they treated Gallant after what he's done for the city and the franchise, but the play on the ice is, is it speaks for itself since the coaching change. Absolutely. I know you mentioned a few minutes ago about the trade deadline and you had mentioned some of the other teams in the Pacific what do you think about the moves that the Golden Knights made, like adding Martinez, Cousins, Leonard, and trading away Eakin? I think they're a better team today than they were. I uh, Obviously, the, the Leonard deal, uh, and we were talking a little bit off the air, uh, that came out of left field even for the people that are uh, – whatever insiders means, but even the, the guys that are around the team enough. Um, the, the talk in town amongst the, the bloggers and the media guys was that they were still in on Gustafson. That Leonard deal came out on the, on the TSN trade tracker at 11.59 Pacific time. Move, moving Subban, I don't think the franchise ever really had a lot of faith in him, and that showed by how many games Flurry's had to play uh, the last couple seasons. And Flurry hasn't had his best season. He, his father passed away, um, and he took some time away from the team. And, and when he came back, he, he really hasn't been sharp. And, and I don't blame, obviously, I don't blame him for that. That's, you know, everybody has to go through it. And it's a terrible thing to have to do, um, especially as a professional athlete, when you don't get time to grieve with your family. So I'm not, don't take it the wrong way, anybody, that I'm not putting flour down. Mm-hmm. Um, but he has not been sharp. And not being able to, to give him more rest, and and time to deal with that tragedy and it's affected his play on the ice as it would anybody upgrading that backup spot and and after the all-star break the the golden knights bye week was the same week as the all-star week so they had nine days off it was, it was a good time for flurry to be away from the rink and the new coach to do what he needed to do bringing in a robin leonard who's a Vezina trophy finalist just last season i think that gives the golden knights the best one two goalie tandem in, at least in the western conference and so if flurry does go down or does need a game or two or three or four in the last 20 games of the season uh, it's going to give coach DeBoer the chance to get him his rest going into the playoffs and and I think that's that's a great move and and the the good thing it's a little bit of GM wizardry right they they traded what the second 
to Chicago, and Chicago retained 50% of the salary. And then they traded uh, Leonard to Toronto, and Toronto got a fifth-round pick. They kept 44% of the salary and sent Leonard to Vegas. So Vegas is only on the hook for 6% of that salary cap, right? And they, That's amazing. <laughs> that's something else, right? <clears throat> I mean, that's one of the best parts of the deal. If they couldn't have put that together, Leonard's not a golden knight today, right? Because they're right up against the salary cap. So, I, yeah, I love the Leonard trade. I don't know much about Cousins. He's, uh, from what I've seen, and I've, I've looked up some of his YouTube highlight reels or whatever, and uh, he, he looks to be a gritty third line forward, which is exactly the depth the Golden Knights need, especially with the injuries that they have now on their third line with Glass being injured again and, and Tuck being injured again. Nick Raw was just injured again. The forward depth has been tested. They called up uh, Patrick Brown from the AHL. There's a, a kid in the Golden Knights system, Gage Quinney, whose dad played for the Las Vegas Thunder back in the 90s, uh, Ken Quinney. They called him up, and he centered the fourth line for a couple games. They had to make a move to shore up their forward depth and, and you know, with speed and a more offensive skill than Cody Eakin. Cody Eakin's been the whipping boy. Every team has one, right? If you if you go through the fan base's Twitter feeds, it, it uh, I don't know, some people think that because they hate a – player X, right? That you should be able to trade him for Connor McDavid, right? <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? If you don't yeah. like him, what makes you think the other team general managers are gonna like him? But so it was always, oh, we should we should give Eakin for this guy. We should give Eakin for that guy. And I just kind of shake my head and smile and like it doesn't work that way, guys. I was very surprised with the price that they were able to get in return from Winnipeg for Cody Eakin, considering he has had a rough season. Last year at the end of the season, I thought maybe a second or a third. He's a solid third-line center. He doesn't have much offensive upside, but he's a good penalty killer. He could win you a face-off in the, in the defensive zone when you need it. Um, he's a good four-checker. Um, you know, standard third line fair 10 years ago now everybody thinks you're supposed to have uh Sidney Crosby play center on all three lines nowadays because of the way the league has gone but um a, a serviceable third line center with a limit, little bit of limited offensive skill but for them to get him uh, a fourth a conditional third if Winnipeg makes the playoffs or they're able to re-sign Cody Eakin I thought they did a good job in return on that and they were able to shed 3.85 million salary cap which then allowed them to go ahead and make the Leonard deal so that was a good move I think the most underrated trade will be the Alex Martinez trade though and I'm I'm a big believer that when you add Stanley Cups to the locker room it makes the whole team better uh, some people don't put too much stock in that I put a lot of stock in that like I was talking about the Kings earlier when they brought in Carter and Richard those guys had Stanley Cup experience they were able to show the young Kopitars and Dowdies a little bit of what it takes to go through a playoff grind this is just one example right so with the Golden Knights you have three Stanley Cups in that you traded for Stevenson earlier in the year he's been uh, a fantastic pickup he's played center on all four lines so far he's played wing He's come in. I think he has 10 or 11 goals since they picked him up. Uh, he's very, very fast with the puck. And that that's a skill that maybe they didn't have lower down in the lineup. Um, so that going back is a good trade for the Golden Knights. But outside of Stevenson, who won the Stanley Cup with Washington, you had McNabb, who had one Stanley Cup, uh, the 2014 Kings team. No one else on the roster had a Stanley Cup. 
So if you bring in a defenseman who's a very good defensive awareness type player in Alex Martinez, uh, who has two Stanley Cups, who's been through those wars. And, you know, the first the first run through, the Kings were 12-4 and four in the playoffs, 16-4 and four in the playoffs. Won both games on the road to open all four series. And, and Jonathan Quick stole the show, right? In the second 2014 run, they went to game sevens in all three of the first-round series. And it, it was a war. People remember his Stanley Cup goal against uh, Henrik Lundqvist, of course. The goalie scored against Chicago in double overtime to put the the Kings into the Stanley Cup final that year. That ended what I think is one of the best series of hockeys that I've seen ever. That was oh no doubt that series was amazing, and and Amart won it, and then he went on and won the Stanley Cup. Uh, shot by Clifford, rebound, score, jazz hands, the whole thing. But what he's going to bring this team is something they didn't have on defense. And he's not a big frame, but he will make you pay a price if you think you're going to go down and park park it in front of the crease. I think he was third in the league in block shots. He will block shots for you. He will pay the price for you. He will make the simple play to clear the zone. If it's up the boards and out, fine. If it's grabbed the puck and skated out, that's fine. He could play the left side. He can play the right side. Vegas only has one right-handed defenseman. So having a versatile guy who could play both sides is important. He can play your second power play. He can kill penalties. So he brings a lot to this team that they didn't have. And I think that's going to be the most underrated trade until we get to the playoffs. Some people on, on Twitter, whatever, they're talking about, they gave up two second-round picks for Alex Martinez. Look, he only has a $4 million cap hit. One of the seconds is the second that was St. Louis's through Buffalo, which was in the Colin Miller trade. They gave up their second this year, and they took the second from Colin Miller and turned it into Alex Martinez. I don't have a problem with the price for what he's going to bring to this team. So all in all, I, I give the Golden Knights an A for what they were able to do. Um, upgrading goalie, upgrading forward depth, upgrading defense, shedding salary cap. I think any general manager would be happy with that at the trade deadline. Now, something that you had mentioned earlier was expectations going into this season. And if we look at any sort of possession metrics throughout the season or expected goals for or anything like that, the Golden Knights should be running away with the division, right? It's been a lot more competitive than it, than it looks on paper. The only red flag that really stands out is something you had mentioned earlier, which is goaltending, especially at even strength, where they're near the bottom of the league in, in even strength save percentage. I'm curious uh, what your thoughts are. Do you think it is a, a, a goaltending issue or do you think it's a, a defensive system problem? And do you think the Martinez trade remedied some of those issues? Um, yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> I, I think it's a combination of all of the above, right? You don't uh, go that heavy on one stat, uh, five on five save percentage, and only find one root cause. You know what I mean? There's there's other underlying issues that, that bring those statistics up, right? So I, I mentioned that uh, Flurry's been having a tough season, and he has. I mentioned that uh, Malcolm Subban, although he he started off rough, 0-4-1, but he, he had come around 9-3-1 since that point. Not good. And so I think well, that goes back to the uh, the comment I made about letting them park themselves in front of the crease, right? There's always you know, the hockey cliche, you got to pay a price to go to the hard areas, right? Yeah, yeah. 
nobody paid that price this season against the Vegas Golden Knights. It, over and over again, I'm just just frustrated watching watching other teams' forwards just two at a time sometimes just park in front of Mark Andre Fleury. Nobody was clearing the crease. Um, five on five, it's hard to make a save if you can't see the puck. And so adding Alex Martinez, you know, we, we were talking on the podcast about what I thought the defense needed. Lots of people were saying Gustafson. Lots of people were saying Tyson Berry. Offensive puck mover, right? Shea Theodore has the most points from a defenseman since December 15th in the National Hockey League. He's moving the puck all over the ice. Nate Schmidt, since the coaching change, has picked up his play dramatically. He was having a very rough season before that. Adding a, a defensive liability in Augustuson or just getting a puck mover to get a puck mover. I, I said, I told Chris on our on our show that we needed a Willie Mitchell type defenseman, mm-hmm. able to skate the puck out. But if the puck's loose, he's not going to backhand it blindly into the center of the ice. He's going to bang it into the corner and get it out of danger. And I've already seen Amart do that two or three times so far with the puck on the goal line. And, and not try anything fancy. Just get the puck out of danger. You can't score from the corner. Go over there, chase it down, get it up the boards, and get it out. And I don't mean any disrespect to John Merrill or, or uh, Holden or White Cloud or Haig, the other the two rookies that the Golden Knights have been playing a lot this season. But Amart's an upgrade over both of those players, or all four of those guys. So let's, let's Coach DeVore slot his defense more appropriately where you don't have a Holden Merrill pairing, which you can make the case that Holden and Merrill are, are really five, six, six, seven defensemen, right? Where you would want them slotted and they're playing four, five, sometimes three, four as a Holden Merrill pairing, which obviously isn't good for your five on five state. No. So when you can, I mean, now that you can slot McNabb with Schmidt, stay-at-home defenseman with a puck mover. You could put Holden with Theodore, who's a stay-at-home defenseman with a puck mover. And you have Alex Martinez playing your third pair with right now the rookie Zach Whitecloud. He can cover up for any rookie mistakes that happen. He's a good communicator on the ice. And I look for that stat to go down the rest of the way. Also, Marc-Andre Fleury has been playing a lot better for the last 10 games or so. I'm satisfied with that answer. That sounds pretty good to me. (laughs) I'm I'm hoping so anyway. No, I love it. Uh, One of the other things that really stood out to me, though, and is actually the the topic uh, that that I covered this week on, on this pod is zone starts because the Golden Knights lead the league in both offensive zone starts and offensive zone face-offs. And this isn't the first year they've done this. This is the second year in a row that they have the best ratio of offensive to defensive zone face-off starts. I'm fascinated by this, and, and I'm very curious what your thoughts are. Could you shed some light on what they're doing to keep the puck out of their end and force face-offs in the offensive zone so much? Yeah, it's a Coach Gallant mantra. Is the other team can't score if you're in their zone. And that was <laughs> that's a staple of Coach Golan hockey when he, the Golden Knights are, are playing their best hockey. They roll four lines. They keep their shifts 40 to 50 seconds. One thing in their inaugural season that just amazed me that an expansion team was able to do, and it's carried forth not so much this year at times. Um, I've seen it a couple times here lately, and it's very encouraging. They would make wholesale line changes while maintaining possession in the offensive zone, and they could do that with any line. They're a very aggressive forechecking team. They get the puck when they dump it in. They have fast 
forwards that get on the puck in a hurry, even if it takes a few minutes, uh, seconds, whatever, of scrum up behind the net, nine times out of ten, they'll recover that puck and, okay, work it around, get it back to the point. Okay, we've had we're, we've been in the zone 40 seconds now. And, and they'll, they'll throw it back in behind the net. The forward's already there waiting. Someone will skate off, and then they replace him. Then they work it around the boards to the other side. The other forward goes off. And they work it around down to the middle, maybe get a shot. The other forward goes off. Then the two defensemen go off. When they're playing their best hockey, they do that three or four times a game. And that's more than I've ever seen any other team be able to do that. And it, it's, a, it's a coach blonde thing. You get the puck in, you keep it in. You're aggressive forechecking. You have speed when you enter the zone. And they're, they're transitioning from their zone through the neutral zone with speed in possession. That's where you keep your offensive zone time. And that's how you create offensive zone starts. Three things are going to happen. You're going to score. They're going to take a penalty. Or the goalie's going to freeze the puck. Yep. So then – at that point, there's your offensive, uh, there's your offensive faceoff right there. Uh, you mentioned this was a gallant feature of his system. Is it still happening under DeBoer? It's it's actually happening more. So when Coach DeBoer took over the team, I mentioned this the horrible streak of letting in the first three goals of a game. Oddly enough, they were able to win two of those goal those games too and get five points out of that that seven game disaster or seven home game disaster. But <clears throat> Coach DeBoer said, okay. I'm going to start Ryan Reeves' line every game. So Coach DeBoer starts every game with the fourth line. Hmm. And that they bring energy. That's been that line's uh, hallmark since it was put together. Basically, it's Nosa, Carrier, and Reeves. Sometimes Raw will play center. The ability that Gallant has and now Coach DeBoer had to roll four lines is because that fourth line can drive possession. And, and when they're on the ice, the puck's in the other team's zone nine times out of ten. And even if you're on the road, Let's say you have McDavid's line on the ice. Well, if you put Reeves and Carrier and Raw on the ice, the puck's going to be in their end the whole their whole shift. They're going to be defending their whole shift. They're going to be tired by the third period. They're going to get sick of going into the corner and having Ryan Reeves and Will Carrier pound on them trying to retrieve those pucks. So that's one of the reasons that they're able to do that and do it now with Coach DeBoer is that fourth line does drive possession to the offensive zone. More often than not, that puck's going to be in the other team's zone for the entirety of their shift. And now that Coach DeBoer is starting that line, uh, when they're at home, obviously a big Reeves hit gets the crowd excited. And you don't need much to get the Vegas crowd excited. <laughs> I think we all know that by now. So if Reeves and Carey throw a couple big hits early in the game, and then you can roll uh, the Carlson line, and then you can roll – the Stastny line. And now Stastny is, is centering Smith and Marsha show. Now Carlson is between stone and patch That's a, a change that coach DeBoer made. It's no coincidence that stone and patch have been on fire for this whole, this whole winning streak that they're on. So, you, you know, you throw Reeves line out, then you throw the Stastny line out. Stastny's a great face off guy. It's over 56% at this point, I believe in the season last time I checked. So even if they freeze the puck, Stastny's going to get it back. Then you then you bring the Carlson line out. One one of the more dangerous lines in hockey right now, I believe, is Carlson Stone Pacioretty. They're on fire right now. And then the weak link in the chain has been that third line. We're hoping that Cousins can can add his speed and a little bit of offensive upside. Stevenson most likely is going to be centering that line until Cody Glass is healthy. And I believe you'll probably see Carrier on the right side 
it was good. Kerry is real good with the puck. He has good speed. He loves to drive down, um, drive down his wing and, and then cut towards the, towards the net. His, his possession and driving the puck into the offensive zone is the, one of the strengths of his game. Plus, he's just as physical as Ryan Reeves. And then you roll that fourth line back out again. So Coach DeBoer certainly has. He's been a little handcuffed on that third line. But we're hoping that Cousins can, can help out in that respect until uh, Tuck and Glass get back. And if they get back healthy and you go into the playoffs with um, Cody Glass, Alex Tuck, Cousins on on that third line, and you could play Reeves, Waugh, and Carrier on that fourth line. That's going to be brutal. That's going to be tough to defend those four lines in a in a seven game series. No doubt. All right. Well, I I really do appreciate those insights because that that explains a lot of it. And um, but before we wrap up, I want to give you the floor to uh, if you want to plug any projects you're working on or, or what's going on in your podcast and uh, any shout outs that you have. Well, make sure everybody goes and follows Chris. Chris wasn't gonna, uh, wasn't able to be here tonight. He lives on Long Island. He d- he does a lot of Islanders content on the Ion Ion Isles FS uh, fan sided page, and he he writes some pretty good articles. Two months ago, he wrote an article that said Lamarillo needs to get JG Pacho right now. <clears throat> Lo and behold, <laughs> trade deadline. Uh, I got to give Chris his props on that one. So he's over at the NL King on Twitter and he links all of his stuff through there. And for any of our podcast content, just go to at Vegas hockey pod. We are also um, this season partnered with the hockey podcast network.com. They, what they did is they took a podcast from every team and grouped it all up into one place and then put it out on every platform. So if you don't go to the Vegas hockey pod or I mean, our, our site host is Blog Talk Radio. Through the hockeypodcastnetwork.com, you could go to Spotify or SoundCloud or any of the other platforms and find us through the hockeypodcastnetwork.com. And, and those guys do a great job putting all this together. And we appreciate the opportunity to work with them. It's been great for us. So make sure everybody goes and checks them out too. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you, Mark, for taking the time to join me on the pod. And I wish you and the Golden Knights, the best of luck the rest of the season. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. All right, so we're going to bring this thing up to date and look at some of these numbers for this year. Currently, as of this week, the team leading the league in the number of offensive zone faceoffs per game is the Vegas Golden Knights, and it's not even close. You might think that a difference of a little over half a faceoff per game isn't a huge deal, but to put that in perspective... The same gap between Vegas and the second place team, the Canadians, is the same difference between them and the seventh place team. So the difference in faceoffs per game between one and two is the same as two and seven. Vegas is absolutely lapping the league in the number of faceoffs they're getting in the offensive zone. And the same can be said about their ratio of offensive to defensive faceoffs and offensive to defensive zone starts. Vegas has an absolute insurmountable lead in their ratios in both of those categories. Earlier this week when I was putting together some charts and graphs, I posted them to my Twitter and I got a fantastic question from Isha, co-host of the Soda Pod. And he asked about the impact the week-to-week Mark Stone injury was going to have on zone starts and zone face-offs. First of all, this is really hard to quantify one person's impact when it comes to zone starts and zone face-offs. But I'm going to try to at least extrapolate some conclusions based on two data sources we do have. First of all, we can look at Stone's individual deployment compared to the rest of the team 
in both different zones and different faceoffs. Stone is in the middle of the pack amongst his team's forwards at starting his shifts in the offensive zone. Surprisingly, Cody Eakin has had more offensive zone starts per game than Mark Stone. Defensive zone starts are a completely different thing. He is third amongst forwards that starts his shift in the defensive zone. When it comes to faceoff deployment, he's deployed in the defensive zone more than any other forward and second in offensive zone faceoffs amongst forwards on his team. So obviously, he's going to be missed in that regard. The second data we have, though, is how the team is playing without him in the lineup. And I really want to stress that you cannot replace his production, but specifically when it comes to zone starts, in the three games that he's missed since his injury, which is a super small sample size, both their zone start ratio and faceoff ratio has actually slightly improved over their averages when he was in the lineup. You got to take this with a grain of salt, okay? Because you don't want to read too much into zone starts and zone faceoffs. He's their best player. And personally, I believe he is a top five forward in the league. Losing him for a couple of weeks is going to matter for a lot of other reasons, including goal production and goal suppression. But early indications at least point to that the Golden Knights are going to continue to roll four lines. They're going to continue to spend a lot of time in the offensive zones with or without him. Now, the production in that zone is absolutely going to drop off without him in the lineup, but they're still going to spend a lot of time there. They're followed by Boston and Winnipeg. Now, there's a few surprises. Vancouver and the New York Islanders both have very poor offensive to defensive deployment numbers, which really begs the question how important these numbers are. When I was exploring these metrics in, in the number crunch segment, I was looking at them in relationship to goal differential. But really, the thing they should be most correlated with is the possession statistics. Because if you're starting more often in the offensive zone, you should be possessing the puck, which means you should be generating more shots on net than your opponent. So things like Corsi and Fenwick should have a stronger relationship with zone start and zone face-off ratios. And they do. About 40% of the variation in Corsi and Fenwick can be explained by where you start on the ice, which makes sense. But when we look at the data for this year and we look at the data from the past decade, there's a few conclusions that I think we can draw from both zone starts and zone faceoffs. Now, in the moment, in an individual moment, you know, stereotypical divisional matchup, tie game, late in the game, you, you need a goal. Would you rather start in the offensive zone or the defensive zone? Of course you'd rather start in the offensive zone. That's not even a question. And you want to win the faceoff. That's not even a question either. But in the aggregate, what we see is that where you start your shifts and where you start your face-offs matters a lot less when it comes to scoring goals or even generating shots than a lot of other variables that we've seen in, in past episodes. So there's really two big conclusions I think we can draw from this. And first of all is if you have strong goaltending, which is a total crapshoot year to year, you can overcome bad zone starts. And second of all, shot generation is about 40% dependent on zone starts and faceoff starts, which means what happens after the puck is dropped actually matters more than where you start. It still matters. It just doesn't matter as much as you might think. On that note, I just want to thank you for tuning in. And next week, I'm going to be looking at individual faceoff numbers, which players get deployed the most in the offensive zone, defensive zone, all zones. How do they fare in each of those zones? I'll be digging into faceoffs a lot more than I did this week on an individual level of analysis as opposed to team-wide. And remember, folks, drink 
and think responsibly. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Ice Analytics, your source for NHL stats and analysis hosted by the Hockey Podcast Network. Every team, everywhere. You can find me on Twitter at Ice Analytics, and you can find the show notes at www.statsenforcer.com. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to our feed and leave us a review.